1945, in a world scarred by war, came a global appeal for peace. To find a way to end war. In response, the United Nations was formed. Its mission was clear to prevent the horrors of another global conflict. But despite the UN's endeavors, its history has been marked by a succession of wars and violence. The continuance of the Cold War is making the United Nations system more and more unworkable, and thus is undermining its usability. From Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq, to Rwanda and Darfur. From the Balkans to Yemen, from Syria to Ukraine, and of course, the longest running of them all, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, hundreds of thousands of Jewish survivors sought asylum in historical Palestine, a land sacred to Muslims, Christians, and Jews alike. The General Assembly of the United Nations has made its decision on Palestine. In 1947, the UN proposed dividing Palestine, a plan rejected by the Palestinians who were in the majority and the State of Israel was formed the following year, leading to the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Over the years, Israelis have expanded their settlements, occupying land beyond the UN demarcated partition. Shame on you for killing Shame on you. thousands of Palestinians. Despite countless initiatives, the decades-long quest for peace has been interrupted by outbreaks of violence. The Palestinian leadership remains divided. Fatah in the occupied West Bank recognizes Israel, while Hamas in Gaza does not. The UN's presence has been constant, its calls for peace a refrain echoing over the years. All this must stop. Stop fighting. Start talking. No solutions can come through violence. We issue statements. We express concern. We voice a solidarity, but life hasn't changed. The fighting must stop immediately. The protection of civilians must be paramount. The situation in the Middle East is growing more dire by the hour. October the 7th was a watershed moment. Hamas's surprise dawn offensive outmaneuvered Israeli security. More than a thousand Israelis were killed, triggering an unprecedented escalation. In response, Israel declared war on the armed group, and in doing so has reshaped Gaza's landscape with unparalleled destruction and the killing of over 10,000 civilians. In the midst of the war, a crisis unfolded within the UN. So divided were members that it took three weeks for the organization to pass a resolution on the war. In protest against the UN's failure to condemn what he termed the wholesale slaughter of the Palestinian people by the Israeli army, senior human rights official Craig Mokhyber stepped down. His public resignation letter noted that, once again, we are seeing a genocide unfolding before our eyes and the organization we serve appears powerless to stop it. 
With Israel's war on Gaza intensifying, Craig Mokhyber, the former New York director of the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, talks to Al Jazeera. Craig Mokhyber, the former director of the New York Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. My pleasure. You have resigned in protest from your job, and you wrote a four-page letter outlining why you did that, and I want to get to that in a second. But in your words, why did you step down? Well, I actually uh, began to communicate my concerns about the UN's reaction to gross violations of human rights in Palestine back in March. Um, this was after some of the atrocities that were happening on the West Bank uh, at that time, including the pogroms that happened in Hawara. And um, what I thought was a trepidatious response by UN officials at that time to the situation and a kind of effort to silence UN officials who were speaking out, including those in the Human Rights Office. Uh, and so I communicated to the High Commissioner uh, my discontent with those issues and indicated at that time that I intended to leave the organization in a few months. Of course, the situation got much worse over that time, in particular in Gaza. And that's why I felt compelled then to write that letter uh, to the High Commissioner laying out what I thought was a real disconnect between our normative obligations in the UN and the political approach to Palestine and Israel that had become dominant in the political side of the UN. It is a critique uh, of the UN response. It is not a critique of the entire UN sure. because many of our colleagues doing humanitarian work and human rights monitoring and our UNRWA colleagues, dozens of whom have lost their lives in the last couple of weeks, are doing absolutely heroic work. But in the political corridors of the organization, the ball was being dropped, I thought, in a very fundamental way. And so I sat down and wrote the letter to express that officially to the High Commissioner. We're going to get to some of those points. But just to be clear, some at the UN are suggesting that this is just a normal uh, uh, retirement, if you will, and not a resignation. Can you clear that up? Did you resign or did you retire? Uh, I resigned uh, earlier than I had intended. I was asked to stay on. There was certainly no pressure from the United Nations. Uh, I had a couple of more years to go. But I was particularly frustrated in the inability uh, myself to communicate publicly on these issues. Uh, and I thought that I could probably ha be more influential outside the organization at this point than inside the organization. Uh, I'm old enough to <laughs> retire, uh, but I'm leaving a little bit early. You could have just handed over your UN badge, walked out quietly, but you chose to write this letter. Why? Well, for me, it's very personal. I mean, I came to the United Nations for the first time in the 1980s because I was convinced of the strong normative role that the organization was playing at that time, including in situations where powerful member states didn't want the organization to take a strong position in opposing apartheid in South Africa, in those days as well, atrocities uh, in Palestine, death squads in Central America. And um, I felt that somehow that it slipped. You know, this year is the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's the cornerstone of this entire human rights movement. But what people don't often realize is that same year, 1948, that the Universal Declaration was adopted was also the year of the Nakba in Palestine and the creation of apartheid in South Africa. The UN held a very principled, norm-based, law-based line on apartheid in South Africa until it fell. That is not the approach that the UN has taken in Palestine, particularly since Oslo. There has been a kind of about face 
that has moved away from a normative law-based approach into one that defers to political expediency and powerful uh, political forces that I think ha is in large measure responsible for the uh, continued deterioration of the situation in Palestine. And so I thought I needed to put on the record how far we were slipping from this normative obligation of the organization, uh, what I thought the impacts of that were, and what I think should, should happen next. You were fed up. I was fed up. Let's get to a little bit of this letter. This letter that you wrote is scathing. Can't think of another word for it. There's a lot to take out of this, but one part is, is that you say what Israel is doing, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and in occupied East Jerusalem is, and I quote, a textbook case of genocide. Your words. Yeah. Well, you know, genocide is one of those terms that is very much politically abused. It's claimed in cases where it does not apply. It's denied in cases where it doesn't. You know, after having been a human rights lawyer for 32 years, I'm well aware of the abuse of the term. But we determined genocide based upon a legal instrument, which is the UN Convention on Genocide, that sets out a definition with the elements of genocide, each of which is evident in the current case. Usually the most difficult part of proving genocide is intent, because there has to be an intention uh, uh, to uh, destroy in whole or in part a particular group. In this case, the intent by Israeli leaders has been so explicitly stated and publicly stated by the prime minister, by the president, by senior cabinet uh, ministers, by military leaders, that that is an easy case to make. It's on the public record. Um, and then beyond that, you look at the specific acts that are required for uh, genocide. And you see several of those have already been made evident. One of them is creating conditions uh, that prevent you know, people from living um, dignified lives uh, and that lead to the destruction of the, of the group. Well, it's not hard to prove that in Gaza, where since really 2015, people have been living effectively in a prison where there is an intentional denial of the necessities um, uh, of life. You add to that, you know, the massive bombardments and the, the killings of so many thousands of civilians, thousands of them, children. Uh, and uh, it seems to me you have a prima facie case uh, for genocide. Now, in the end, this is a determination to be made in a court of law. But it's important that we start using the language uh, that the law sets out. Just as, you know, in recent terms, every major international human rights organization Israeli human rights organizations, Palestinian human rights organizations, United Nations human rights mechanisms, independent mechanisms, have found that the situation in Israel and Palestine amounts to the crime of apartheid. The UN needs to get used to addressing these particular violations, just as we have in other situations. When we ask the Secretary General in his office about genocide, he won't use that term. He says, and previous Secretary Generals have said, that that is for courts to decide. Do you think that the Secretary General should start using the term genocide when it comes to what we're seeing happening in Gaza? Well, I understand the position of the Secretary General and some of my own colleagues in the UN. When they speak publicly, they're speaking on behalf of an institution. And in doing so, there are very complex processes that need to be gone through before one can make those sorts of pronouncements. And in the end, any crime is to be determined by a court of law. But if we can allege that we see war crimes, crimes against humanity, as we have often done, there's no reason to exclude 
where we see very strong evidence the possibility of genocide uh, being committed. And I think you're going to be hearing that term more and more in connection with what we're witnessing in Gaza. Um, but institutions, of course, have to go through the necessary steps before they can make that pronouncement. I, as of uh, today, am an independent citizen, not carrying the institution on my shoulders. And I feel quite confident as a human rights lawyer in saying that what I see unfolding in Gaza and beyond uh, is genocide. Israel has admitted to bombing a refugee camp in Gaza, not once, not twice, maybe even more times. They've bombed UN facilities, schools, hospitals, and forced the displacement of civilians. Presumably, these are violations of international law. Am I right or am I wrong? They are violations of existing international law, they are gross violations of human rights, and they are grave breaches of international humanitarian law of the Geneva Conventions. Uh, and this applies very much to, to Israel. It applies as well to states that are supporting Israel in this campaign. You know, everyone who is a high contracting party to the Geneva Conventions is responsible not only for respecting the rules in the Geneva Conventions, but for ensuring respect vis-a-vis -vis other states over whom they have influence. In this case, it's very clear that countries like the United States, uh, the UK, and others have a great deal of influence over uh, what Israel is doing. Not only have we not seen those countries exercising their influence to ensure respect for the Geneva Conventions, but we've seen them, in fact, arming Israel, providing economic support to Israel for these campaigns, uh, providing diplomatic cover, including in the Security Council, for example, vetoing a humanitarian ceasefire, uh, and all of this is in breach of their obligations as well under international humanitarian law. How is Israel able to get away with it then? Well, this is one of the great frustrations of people working in the field of human rights. The enforcement power of the international human rights and humanitarian law regime is weak. It's stronger now than it was when I started uh, in this business because we do have the International Criminal Court, international tribunals uh, from time to time, experiments and third party uh, universal jurisdiction in these cases. There are a whole series of commissions of inquiry and independent investigative mechanisms that are documenting these abuses, mountains of evidence. But if the Security Council, which is the only body in the UN with enforcement power, is unable or unwilling to act because of a veto, uh, for example, then as we saw this past week, it shifts over to the General Assembly in an emergency special session under Uniting for Peace. They can adopt a resolution expressing the desire of the whole, virtually the whole international community, as they did, demanding a ceasefire, but there's no way to enforce that. And that's why individual states who have the capacity to bring about compliance with international law have an obligation to do it as well. That's not happening. Israel says this all started with October 7th and Hamas' attack on Israel. Uh, how would you describe Hamas' attack on Israel and Israel's response to it in the term of international law? Well, first on the date, of course, this is uh, warring parties will always pick a specific date and time and pretend that the conflict started on that date. I think you, you saw the Secretary General was quite rudely attacked for suggesting that the broader context is a root cause of what has happened there. And there's no doubt that uh, interning 2.3 million civilians year after year after year in a large open air prison where generations of children are growing up in that cage, where people are being denied food and water and medicine and shelter and hope and a dignified life, 
year after year again uh, that this is a root cause of conflict. Anyone would resist those circumstances. As you would expect people under occupation suffering from the brutalities and indignities that they suffer on the West Bank to also resist that occupation. Now, that said, there is also no doubt that uh, armed groups also have obligations under international law, and in particular, uh, the principle of distinction, protecting civilians uh, from their armed attacks. And clearly, uh, several civilians were not protected in that Hamas attack, and there has to be accountability for that as well. Joe Biden has recently said that after this conflict is over, we need to get back to a two-state solution. In your letter, you say the mantra of a two-state solution has become, and I quote, an open joke in the corridors of the United Nations where we are sitting right now. Is it really an open joke within the corridors of the United Nations? It Explain. is, and it has been for quite a long time. If you ask somebody in their official capacity about the two-state solution, they will repeat that phrase to you over and over again as the official position of the United Nations. Indeed, it is the official position of the United States. But nobody who follows these circumstances, either from the political side or from the human rights side, believe, one, that a two-state solution is possible anymore. There's nothing left uh, for a Palestinian state that would be sustainable or just or, or possible in any respect, and everyone knows that. And secondly, that solution never dealt with the problem of the fundamental human rights of Palestinians. So, for example, it would leave them as second-class citizens without full human rights inside uh, the green light, inside what is now Israel proper. And so when people are not talking uh, from official talking points, you hear increasingly about a one-state solution. And what that means is beginning to advocate for the principle of equality of human rights instead of these old uh, political taglines. That would mean a state in which you have equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews based upon human rights uh, and based upon the rule of law. It is what we call for in every other circumstance around the world. And the question is, why is the United Nations not calling for that in Israel-Palestine as well? What's the answer to that? Why? Well, I think we have lost the way. Uh, you know, up until uh, about 30 years ago, with the advent of the Oslo process, the emphasis of the UN on dealing with the Palestinian situation was international law, was international human rights, was self-determination, was the UN Charter. But something switched at that moment of Oslo where international law and international standards uh, became subverted to notions of political expediency, to the idea that you have to defer to the parties. That as well is a great deception because this is not two equal parties. This is occupier and occupied. This is colonizer and colonized. This is one of the most powerful states and militaries in the world and a besieged and dispossessed people. So the idea with this uh, discrepancy of power that you simply defer to the agreement of the parties, that only means deferring to Israel, which is where the power resides there. And when you leave behind international norms and standards and international law, the thing that you cannot achieve is justice. And without justice, as we all know, there'll never be peace in the Middle East. So I, I think uh, everybody knows uh, when they talk about it private, privately that there is no two-state solution which is possible. But, you know, the, the political mechanisms of the UN move slowly. It's a shame because we are being left behind by voices in civil society who have been calling out apartheid, who have been calling out the gross violations of human rights, and who have been calling for a situation based on equality and human rights in all of Israel and Palestine. So there are more people at the UN 
that would echo what you wrote in your letter, but they're just not in a position to say it. There are, and dozens, if not more than a hundred of them, have reached out to me personally since my letter was leaked, uh, saying how much they agree and support it and how grateful they are that this is now a part of the conversation. And my hope is that the conversation will begin to expand. I also make the point in the letter that all of these points will be resisted powerfully by uh, key member states of the United Nations uh, who have a completely different agenda. But if the UN can just take a principled approach, not just the humanitarian staff and the human rights staff, but the political leaders in the organization, uh, maybe we'll be able to shake loose from this failed paradigm of the last 35 years and move into a situation that brings some hope of protected human rights and a chance for peace as well. More than 100 UN employees have reached out to you since your letter leaked. Colleagues have reached out to me from the field, uh, from Palestine itself, from other duty stations, from Geneva and from New York, uh, applauding the sentiments that have been expressed there. I haven't invented anything in that letter. These are points of discussion that are quite common in the halls of the UN. In your letter, you say that we have much to learn from the millions of people that have come out around the world uh, in recent days and weeks, really, to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians. Uh, you specifically mention uh, Jewish human rights defenders who stood in solidarity with Palestinians at a protest in New York City, just a few blocks from where we're at now at Grand Central Station. What can the UN learn from these protests? Well, look, we've been saying for years that we need to open the doors of the UN wider to civil society. They are quite often the conscience of humanity. Uh, we are a heavy organization that carries a lot of politics on our shoulders, pressure from member states uh, uh, in all directions, uh, you know, political challenges to which they are not subjected. But if there is any hope in this situation where state institutions have failed miserably, where international institutions have failed terribly, it is coming from the streets. It is coming from the people in countries around the world who have said they do not accept this paradigm. They do not accept these massive violations of human rights. I was moved so deeply by the protest at Grand Central Station that you mentioned just a few days ago, where thousands of Jewish protesters took to uh, the floor of Grand Central uh, at risk of arrest, many of uh, hundreds of which were arrest, uh, to say, this is not on our behalf, it's not in our name, we stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people, we demand human rights and we demand a ceasefire. Those sentiments are echoed by Muslim protesters and Christian protesters, human rights defenders of every stripe in this city, across the country and across the globe right now. You lived in Gaza for the better part of two years in the 1990s. This seems like it's personal to you. It's deeply personal to me. You know, when you look at the dehumanization of the Palestinian people that is often so present in the statements of Western politicians, and I'm sorry to say in Western media, uh, I see the faces of people that I know and love in Gaza. I mean, I did a number of missions there, starting with the first intifada in the late 1980s, uh, human rights monitoring mission, uh, several after that, was posted there for a couple of years, did some missions uh, afterwards. And I don't recognize the portrayal of the Palestinian people in Western media. What I know is that the Palestinian people laugh and they tell jokes and they love and they cry and they cook and they dance and they party. And they are, their children have the same dreams and hopes as the children 
in, in the West, and the parents have the same dreams and hopes that the parents in the West. They have paint, been painted with a broad dehumanizing brush. When you see the faces of these people, when you live alongside these people, uh, which is a reality of working in the field anywhere in the world for UN uh, personnel, these horrible depictions that pave the way for genocide, because the first step is always dehumanization. And I think, you know, there is Article 19 uh, of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in the UN that protects free speech. There's also Article 20 that imposes obligations not to circulate propaganda for war, propaganda, incitement to discrimination, incitement to violence, and there's been far too much of that. What we would like to see from media voices is a reflection of the humanity of the people who are under those bombs. Craig Mokhyber, the former director of the New York Office of the UN High Commissioner of Human Rights, thank you for speaking. Thanks for having me.